Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast dedicated to the growth, development, and advancement of teamwork, leadership, and culture, or what I call the TLC arena. Hi. My name is Greg Gregory, certified speaking professional, host of the podcast, creator of the podcast, and well, I just like to have fun with the podcast. So we're excited to have with us today somebody that I've had the privilege to know off and on. Unfortunately, we had put things together that we were kind of going to be doing this podcast together. Yeah. It's one that? of those things. It's kind of like, okay. Yeah, we so both showed up and... Oh, oh my gosh, it's you. Oh, it's you. Yes. <laughs> so Frank King is joining us today from the uh, West Coast of the United States. And we're going to have a little bit of fun with this. Literally fun because he's a comedian. And you're going, what does a comedian have to do with teamwork? We're going to get into that a little bit as well. But let me tell you a little bit about Frank as we kind of get things started off here. Uh, first off, um, Frank King is a suicide prevention speaker. That's right. Mm -hmm. He also was a writer for The Tonight Show for over 20 years, full-time mm -hmm. speaker, comedian for 35 years, and a TEDx coach for other speakers for the last seven years. Mm -hmm. He's fought lifetime battle with depression and chronic suicide tendencies, turning a long, dark journey of the soul into six TEDx talks on mental health. And guys, today we know how... It, oh, we're up to seven now. Sorry, he's waving out saying seven. Okay, <laughs> seven TEDx talks on mental health. Life-saving insights for associations, corporations, as well as colleagues. And today, it's all in the forefront of the news about the challenges of mental health. Depression and suicide run in his family. He's thought about killing himself more times than he can count. He's come mm -hmm. close enough to dying by suicide that he can actually tell you what the barrel of his gun tastes like. Mm -hmm. Right now, though, he's a motivational speaker, which I know that sounds kind of oxymoron, but it's, it's true. <laughs> yeah. He's a motivational speaker who uses his life lessons to start the conversation, giving people permission to give voice to their feelings, experiences surrounding depression and suicide, and doing it by coming out with it. That's so powerful. He believes that where there's humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there's life. Nobody dies laughing. The right person at the right time with the right information can save a life. Frank That's King, true. welcome to the podcast, The Teamwork Advantage. Well, a little TLC. Everybody needs a little TLC, right? Absolutely. Not the learning channel for those in the 80s and not tender loving care for those born in the 50s and 60s, but teamwork leadership culture. So we're going to have some fun here today. Frank, give us a little bit of a background if you can. Um, how'd you get to where you are? I mean, you didn't wake up saying, hey, I want to be a suicide prevention speaker at some point in time. So how did you get here? Well, actually, in fourth grade, I told my first joke. The kids were laughing. The teacher was hysterical. She was so hysterical, she had to excuse herself and go to the teacher's lounge. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And then in 12th grade, they had a talent show. I always had an annual talent show, second semester, 12th grade. So I did it, and nobody had ever done stand-up before. It was accordion players and folk dancers, you know, the usual. And I won, and I told my mama, I'm going to be a comedian. And she said, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, you know, liberal arts education, never hurt anybody. And then I moved to San Diego to go work for an insurance company. And that was actually the beginning of the end of my insurance career because in San Diego, there's a branch of the comedy store, the world famous comedy store. It's up on Sunset. And I went to open mic night and I was two and a half minutes into my five minute set. And I heard a voice inside my head say, you're home. And my second thought was, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how. Uh, Greg, I've, I've threatened to write a, a keynote called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? Because if I'd known how hard it was to make a living doing stand-up full-time, I might not have given it a shot. But I was dating a young woman at the time. I'd, my first wife and I had separated and divorced. Uh, she did not want to be married to a comedian. She married a guy who sold insurance and got a comedian, a matrimonial bait-and-switch. I can't blame her. 
And I said to my girlfriend, I'm going on the road to be a professional comedian. Do you want to come along for the ride? Thinking she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So we put our jobs, gave up the apartment, put everything in storage. We couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. And she and I were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop. Just one comedy club to another for seven years and change. 2,600, that's what? That's eight years? Seven years, almost eight years, yep. And we worked with, and back then they put you up in what they called a comedy condo, three-bedroom condo they cleaned every week. And so we not only worked with, but spent the week with uh, pretty much anybody who's famous now, Dennis Miller, Foxworthy, Ron White, Ellen, Rosie, Kevin James, Adam Sandler, uh, you know, and I opened up for the Beach Boys, Neil Sedaka, uh, Lou Rawls, you'll never find another love like, love mine. like mine. <laughs> yes. Uh, Randy Travis and, you know, a variety of musical acts. I did a little radio and then the comedy club thing busted, the boom busted. And But I've always been a very clean comic, so I thought, well, you know what? I could work the rubber chicken circuit. I could do comedy after dinner after lunch corporate comedy which was a great idea financially people ask me what's the difference between a club comic and a, and a corporate comic about five thousand dollars a day plus travel <laughs> so i did that till 2007 8 uh, when the last recession hit and the and my bookings dropped off just boom like 80 percent practically overnight and we lost everything we worked for in 25 years of marriage in a chapter seven bankruptcy and that's when i learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like uh, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. The uh, friend of mine came up after a keynote recently and goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? Uh, and I got to be honest with you, Greg, I had always wanted to make a living and a difference. You know, be a speaker, not a, not, a, not a funny speaker, but a speaker who was funny, but I could never figure out what I had to teach anybody. So after... My near brush, my, my brush with suicidality, you know, actually putting the gun in your mouth and realizing there are more nuts in my family than there are in a squirrel turd. I thought, I bet you I could, I could keynote on suicide prevention and so get some training, some certification. And sure enough, I didn't realize how big a deal suicide is in this country and around the world. One person dies of suicide in the U.S. every nine minutes, around the world every 40 seconds. Mostly men, eight out of ten are men, um, and I was invited by two women to help them write a four-book series on men's mental health, which we just finished the fourth book this year, bestseller on Amazon in three categories. And so that's when I began speaking. Oh, the other hurdle, though, Greg was, was I've been a comic for two and a half decades. How do you convince a meeting planner you could do something serious? And my wife said famously, "Do a TEDx." And I said famously, "What's a TEDx?" And and I applied for my first one, and I got it spoiled. And I came out on stage. Nobody in my family, no, none of my friends, my wife didn't know how depressed and suicidal I was. So I came out. Wait, wait, on, wait, wait. Just say you said even your wife didn't know how suicidal you were. No, she had no. So idea. you were able to mask that even in front of the person closest to you. Yes, people with mental illness oftentimes are very good actors. I have a Screen Actors Guild card for a reason, and. So she's about to hit play on YouTube when it went up, when it went up on YouTube. And I said, look, don't hit play yet. I need to tell you about a half dozen things that you don't know about me that I don't want you to learn watching the video. That's when she, I was 52 years old. Uh, we've been married at that point for 25 years. So she was surprised, but you know, it's, and then she played the video and, um, and I recommend to people who have an issue, um, when you're comfortable, come out to the people you know, love, and trust. So they'll know what you're going through. They'll know how they can help you when time comes if you melt down. Anyway, I got my suicide prevention training. And and as I tell my speaking speaker clients, you need to pick a lane. So I had a number of speeches, a networking speech, and a, a motivational speech, and a, I got a cardiac uh, comedy speech because I had a bunch of cardiac work. And I thought, you know what? January 1st, 2018, I said to myself, I'm just going to be a suicide prevention speaker. I, I'll do the other ones if you pay me. But I'm not going to market any of those. I'm just going to be, a, you know, pick a lane. And then I decided I need to choose half dozen ideal clients. So I thought, I bet you there's a top 10 list of occupations at risk for suicide. Sure enough, there's a top 10 list. Dentist, so picked, police, 
actually uh, police are in top 20 not top 10 it's um it goes like this construction mining excavation fishing farming forestry dentistry veterinarians physicians attorneys and construction has the worst rate highest rate a thousand people die by accident pretty much every year in construction Roughly 5,000 die by suicide every year. You are five times more likely to jump off the building than fall off. So, and it, all these industries have a problem. All of them are trying to do something about it. So I tell my speaker coaching clients, look, here's the deal. When somebody contacts me, they, I don't have to convince them that suicide prevention is a good idea. They get that. All they're trying to do is decide which suicide prevention speaker they're going to bring in. And I said, you need to become the expert or thought leader in your lane so that you're no longer a commodity just another speaker you know so that when they come looking for somebody who does what you do they come looking for you that's a long game mm-hmm. and it's happened a few times it doesn't happen all the time but it has happened we tracked you down great um so that's how i got into speaking that's how i became a speaker who was funny rather than a funny speaker okay and it's made all the difference i was at when the tedx the first one i got you know i applied for Next two, I was invited to. They said, do you have any more mental health talks? Oh, yeah. And the next four, I applied to. And and then people kept asking me, would you help me get a TEDx? So I would, you know, friends. And I have a friend who's a business coach. And she said to me one day, Frank, I get the feeling you're, you're helping people get TEDx's for free. And this is a quote. She said, that shit's got to stop. So she said, Let me, I'm going to turn you over to a friend of mine who will build your website. And so he did, and I started charging, you know, and it's it's amazing what people will pay to get a TEDx. If you're a speaker, if you're an author, if you're a coach, I mean, there are people, because it, it won't get you necessarily an engagement, but it will help. You're not going to be able to sell books from the stage, but it will help you sell more books. So there are a lot of advantages to having a TEDx, you know, the big red letters behind you and your yep. thumbnail and the video. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's good for marketing and visibility and credibility and then now i have seven i'm working on my i'm working on getting my eighth and i think i looked it up the other day greg i tried to find somebody online you know, on google who had more than more as many tedx as i have i can't find anybody who's got seven so it's an unofficial world record at this point and each one reinforces the brand each one's on mental health right right people are probably sitting here right now in their cars, walking the dog, listening to the podcast going, what the hockey pucks does this have to do with teamwork, leadership, and culture? Oh, okay. Okay. I think it does. And here's how I got to that conclusion. When we first started chatting about you coming on with this topic, teamwork has to begin with the individual person. Mm -hmm. If we're not good with who we are, then it's a challenge. You can't help, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt, I think, said it. You cannot brighten the path of another without bright, first brightening the path of yourself. Mm-hmm. So a lot of folks really want to help other people. But they're so weak in asking for help themselves. So this aspect, I believe that your, your idea here of mental health, focusing in on recognizing it and reaching out to other people, whether it's mm. people that are closest to you in family, friends, or even colleagues at work, anyone. Okay. I always say th- this podcast is not just for teamwork, leadership, culture at work. It's teamwork, mm. leadership, culture in your personal life, your church life, every aspect of your life, the parts are very real. And that's what I'm well, really focusing in on. And I think you can bring a lot to the table on that. Well, and what you said is exactly how I have a number of speakers that I'm coaching to get TEDx and there are a couple of leadership speakers in there. And when we were having the first initial, you know, 30 minute free coaching session, I said to them, look, here's the deal. The TEDx folks, if you just talked on business leadership, I, I can't help you. I can't take your money because they're not going to book it. It needs to be, I said, if the principles you're teaching on leadership, are applicable to leading a congregation, leading a sports team, leading a Boy Scout troop, leading a family. If they're transferable, that I can sell because that means no matter who's listening to it, the chances are at some point in time, they're going to be in one of those leadership positions. Mm -hmm. But just business, I can't help you because they're very much not commercial on TEDx. But if if it's transferable to all those other things, 
then it's then I think I can sell it. Right. And that's that's the power part, because, again, you're talking into the realms of TEDx. A lot of our folks that are listening to this podcast are employees in a company. They mm -hmm. have zero desire to get onto a TEDx talk. And I get that. But it's still about in here, inside their own heart, that your message will ring true about getting out there and being powerful about ourselves. Am I on the same page there? Yes, uh, because in, 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 the, in the instance of suicide in particular, it's the most preventable cause of death on the planet. Anybody can stop a suicide. Uh, because eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt. If you are willing to learn the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, which is what I teach, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do, you, you know, you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as we're doing right here. And that is starting a conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's so, tr so true. So, uh, comic suicide yeah, okay a... i mean you were a writer we were talking before the show started here uh you worked with jay leno on the tonight show for i don't know how many years it was how does a comic writer how does that work if you're suicidal through all that time frame oh yeah how does that work how does that make sense people laugh at me because i talk about teamwork I'm an right. only child. I work by myself and I'm teaching teamwork. People can't figure that one out either. Okay. So how does comic and suicide prevention and all that kind of work together? Well, a couple of things. Uh, if you think about the world's first comedians, they were the court jesters. And the court jester's job was to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. I believe where there's humor, there's hope, where there's laughter, there's life that nobody dies laughing. And it's, it's a dark subject. And there's a psychological principle that if you have to tell something to somebody and it's very serious and dark, if you then follow it up with, they call it comic relief for a reason. If I follow it up with a funny personal story, make them laugh a little bit, their brain is much better prepared for the next piece of serious business. And it's a cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a woman come up to me after my presentation in Iowa to an agricultural group. And she goes, uh, you made me laugh twice, cry once. I said, my work is done. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, because I made them laugh. I made them cry. And, mm -hmm. and I believe for them to be impacted by what you have to say, that you have to move them emotionally. You know, the old, th the old saying in speaking, uh, they won't remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them, make them feel. feel. Yeah. And... And when I speak, Greg, the, the, I think the real power there is being vulnerable. I think, I think bosses make a mistake. Leaders make a mistake when they, they appear not to be vulnerable anyway. They're, you know, they've yeah. got the world by the tail. They've, you know, this, I think showing a little vulnerability, especially a man showing a little vulnerability is very powerful. It's very attractive and it allows other people to be vulnerable. To, in my case, to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and thoughts of suicide without recrimination. When I do a speech, I always allow half an hour to 45 minutes afterwards. I say, look, we're going to do some general Q&A. And then if you have a story to tell or whatever to share, you've got a question and you don't want to ask it in front of everybody, I'll hang out and I'll take all those individually. And sometimes it's two people, sometimes it's 10. Because I've given them permission. And this is how most of those conversations start, Greg. Frank, I've never told anybody this. <laughs> you know, I get that a lot because they feel comfortable because they know because I live with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. They know that for me, it's not theoretical. It's not academic. It's somebody said to me, um, you're not a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, you're not even a therapist. What qualifies you to speak on this? And I said, well, I could go everything that a psychologist knows, I can learn go to school, I can learn that. What I know from my lived experiences, they will never know. And that's the difference. I, I said, I said to my eyes, look, I am so comfortable in my darkness, I can sit comfortably with you and yours. And again, that that vulnerability, mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon, 
the head of um, J.P. Morgan Chase, yep. is a very smart man. And here's how I know that. They had some problem with one of their credit card divisions. I mean, it was really getting at and under the skin of everybody in the division. And so what Jamie said was, Frank, we're going to have you dual stand up. And then we're going to have you introduce me. I'm going to come out on stage and I want you to make fun of me in front of everybody. And then we're going to do some Q&A. And we're going to set up the first three questions and give you the answer to the first three questions. So you can answer the questions. But the fourth question is the one where we're, this is the money question. It's the thing that everybody's so upset about. It's going to be generated. Somebody's going to stand up and ask this question. And so I do my thing. Jamie comes out. I take one look at him. I go, Jamie, that is a good looking shirt. Does that come in a men's style? The place explodes. And Jamie took it with a plum. He, they, they saw me hammer him and he took it like a, a gentleman. And then I took the first three questions. And I, you know, I don't know if they noticed that I had the answers or not, but the fourth question, a woman stands up and she show, she's so mad she's shaking, almost crying. She asked a question. I lean in like I'm going to answer it. And I go, Jamie, we're going to take this one. Again, a big laugh. Jamie answered the question, put it to bed. But he, he let them see him get hammered and take it. I, it humanized him to them mm. before he had to solve that problem. Yep. So I think in, in leadership, you have to, you know, you have to be human. People need yeah. to know that you are vulnerable and fallible. And you've had your, you've had your difficulties as well. And that's, by the way, in, in my system of teamwork, the T is trust, specifically vulnerability, trust, not yeah. just any type of trust, but allowing yourself to be vulnerable. So you've got an expression that I've actually heard you use before, and that is the riches are in the niches. Yes. Now, I kind of think I know where you're going here, but I'm not really sure. So I'll let you take the ball on this one. Where do you meet? Where are you going with this? Well, remember I said I had the number of speeches, the keynotes that I did, but I, I heard from NSA, National Speaker Association, decades ago, 1995, I heard the expression riches in the niches, but I was loath to pick one lane because if you pick one lane, the economic term for that is opportunity cost. You're not picking all the other lanes, so you're conceivably giving up business by choosing a lane. I think, though, it's a it's a short-term loss, long-term gain that you selected a lane. Mm -hmm. So my niche is simply suicide prevention, speaking as a workplace health and safety issue. That's all I talk about. And unless they want, you know, they want to pay me to do something else. And but I don't market it. And then I, I picked I, I picked my ideal clients. I niched my my speaking and then I niched my clients. So that if you go to suicide prevention speakers, let's say dental, you'll find that I have a half a dozen organic listings on page one Google, a half a dozen organic listings on page one. You find me a 24-year-old who's got that many, that much real estate on Google page one on anything. And I'm 60. Unless they paid for it. Unless they paid, yeah, exactly. So the that tells me that because I've niched my marketing, it makes it very easy to climb the Google food chain to be on page one. And I, that I'm not, I don't have that many listings on all my, on my other five clients, but I do have a listing on page one for each of those because it's a niche. I've niched, I'm not, it's not spray and pray in marketing. I've right. niched my, so niche my speech, niche my clients and it's, it's made all. And I tell entrepreneurs when I speak to entrepreneurs, look, whatever it is you do, don't have a side hustle. Pick a lane. Let's say your auto body shop. Okay. Be the best auto body shop in town and, and be known that that's all you do. You don't do anything else. You're not in Bitcoin. You're not in, you know, whatever you you're, uh -huh. you're, you're yeah. I, I think regardless of what business you're in, you need to niche it. I don't, I, you know, I, I suffered terribly from the shiny object syndrome. I can make money do that. And I can make money doing that. And squirrel. I could. Yes, exactly. I could, and I have in the past made that mistake. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, I looked around my town at, at the people I knew in the chamber of commerce. And I thought to myself, um, why are the most successful people in the chamber, the most successful? And it, it was very simple. They do one thing 
and they do it extremely well. So that's the riches and the niches idea. And that applies not just for entrepreneurs, but anywhere with any business that you're going up. If you're an accountant working in an accounting firm, pick a lane within the accounting line that you want to be specific in and get very good in that one particular lane, whether it's corporate accounting, individual processing or whatever. I mean, it goes, it does not matter the, the industry. Am I right? No. Yes. And I think it's, as you said, in, in business, it begins with the individual. When I got in the insurance business shortly out of college, I talked to a gentleman and he had the same basic advice. He said, look, find out what it is and where it is in the insurance business you belong and go deep, not wide. You know, if it's selling securities or if it's selling whole life or you're, you're, you're the guy that doesn't sell term or, or pick an industry, you, um, you know, that you want to target a particular auto body shops for business insurance. And you become the auto body shop business insurance guy. Just figure out what it is that you should be doing and can mm -hmm. do well and go deep, not wide. And that's great leadership advice that ties into this. So understanding the power of how to make sure that your business, your team is really focused in that one direction. Yes. If you have team members, yeah, you got to make sure um, is it Jim, good to great. Jim uh, Collins. Yeah, I saw him speak. We spoke at the same platform one time, and he talked about, you know, uh, make sure before the bus leaves the station, the people who should be on the bus are on the bus. The people who shouldn't be on the bus are off the bus. And <laughs> but what's the third one? Do you remember the third I part of that? I don't know. And that's where people drop it. So the expression was, and that's in chapter three of Good to Great, okay? It's about first two, then what? It's get the right people on the bus. Yep. Get them in the right seats. That's right. And get the wrong ones off the bus. Yes, that's a three. That's Some a people down. need to get the wrong people off. And by the way, when you get them off the bus, does not mean that they're bad people. No. They're just on the wrong bus, and that's not where you want your bus to go. Uh, one of my first motivational speeches ever, I didn't do that many of them, but I got invited to do one, and it was for uh, a car dealership in Oklahoma. And they had three or four locations. I mean, it was a big dealership, Ford dealership. And they had them all over Oklahoma. And they all, 300 salespeople came to the meeting. And the first thing I said to them was, okay, look, here's the deal, salespeople. If, if selling cars doesn't just, you know, make the hair on your arm stand up, your heart sing, this is where I belong, get out of the business now. You're just taking up somebody else. It's too hard a job not to love it. And you, I'm watching the sales manager in the back of the room going, because I'm basically telling them, if you don't belong in this business, I'm giving them permission to get out. <laughs> but they're just dead weight. I mean, they, you know, they, they're not bad people. Mm -hmm. They're just not. Uh, when I did my first insurance training session with the first company I went to work for, there was a guy there who spoke. And he did a motivational program by an old line motivational speaker named Lou Tice. And mm -hmm. one of the things that Ed Hall was the instructor's name said, look, the company doesn't want me to tell you this, but if you, if you don't love insurance, it's okay. If you're, if you think you're supposed to be doing something else, you need to go and do that. It, it, it's okay. That was a revelation to me. You mean what? I could, Really? <laughs> because I don't think people ask themselves that question. I don't think I give you an example. Every time I fly next to somebody on a plane, we get to talking. I always I ask leading questions. I know my stories. I want to hear theirs. And one of the things I always say to them is, um, what do you do for a living? Mm -hmm. And they say, I'm an attorney. And I say, do you like it? And this is what I hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. which I, that's all I need to hear. I go, well, what would you, if I could wave a magic wand, and you could do anything you wanted to for a living. What would it be? And almost to a person that the, it just leaps out of them and they get excited. Their voice changes. You know, they're just there. And I got an email a year later from a woman. She used to set up exhibit hall booths at conferences. That was her job. And she made good money. And I said to her, look, if you quit that and did whatever it was, she said she, her you know, dream job was, could you survive financially? She goes, oh, yeah, my husband makes good money. We'd survive. I said, well, great. And then we parted company. A year later, I get an email. Frank, you probably don't remember me. But I'm the woman sat next to you that set up uh, 
set up exhibit halls at the conferences. And you said, you know, if I could wear a magic wand and what would you do? It never crossed her mind, I don't think, that she could, could do that. Yeah, as an individual, self-select. You know, I that I love giving people the permission to have those thoughts and 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 to at least go through the process of what would I do? Mm-hmm. That was the first time I ever heard uh, an expression was from a speaker. I was in the mortgage banking industry. And I was in the industry in the early 80s when the economy was not good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, then it got really good. We made a lot of money. Then it got mm-hmm. bad. Then it got good. Then it got bad. It was all ups and downs. And at one point, I was taking some classes with the, uh, a gentleman who became my mentor in the industry and things. And kind of was a guide for me to be where I am today. But Todd Duncan said, when you work, if you do what you love, you'll never work another day in your life. Mm-hmm. And that's where that started to hit. I had seen Zig Ziglar. I had seen Tom Hopkins. I had seen Todd Duncan. I had seen Dr. Stephen Covey. I'd seen some of the greats of the industry. And I like, that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so I started working my way towards that. And so... Uh-huh. It's, it's just one of those things that, you know, you do what you love and that's, that's going to be right there. And that's what you're giving people permission to do. I saw a woman speak at a dental festival. Actually, we spoke together at a dental festival and she had a real, she, she had, she was a dentist and then she got out of the dental business. Now, now to become a dentist, you have invested, the average dentist comes out of school like a half a million dollars in student loan debt. You've invested the time and the effort and the money. So it's very difficult for somebody in a professional capacity like that to make a change because they've invested so much. Mm -hmm. She said, look, I don't want you to quit dentistry. If you're not happy, if it's not really for you, don't quit. You know, you're, if you're not, if you're working at a practice where you have some flexibility, she said, what I want you to do is make a list of, I don't know, five or six things you think you would like to do. And then she said, and think of it as dating, date that career, you know, do, do, do a part-time one day, or maybe it's going back to college and taking a class and seeing if that's really what, mm-hmm. you know, all you think it is. So just think of it as date, date this, date that job, and then see if you can't pick. And then just slowly, but surely. And I tell comics down. and speakers, yeah, I tell comics and speakers, don't give up your day job. Comedy and speaking, great part-time jobs until the, you're making enough money where it's obvious you should go full-time. So mm-hmm. let, let your job job, as we say in the entertainment business, be your support system for your, you know, what you'd really like to be doing. Let them handle the medical insurance and, and give you a paycheck while you're working on. And that's what I did. Yeah. I, I sold insurance until the moment I decided to go professional as a comedian. Yeah. So I had a, uh, first off on your lawyer topic there, I think we've had five recovering lawyers on the podcast. Oh, who are now doing other things because they really weren't happy being lawyers. So that's just a credence to what you were just talking about. They found the permission to make that move. I have a a good friend of mine. uh, He knew from the time he was about six years old, he wanted to be a dentist. He went Hmm. all the way through dental school, got through everything, did did everything he needed to do, opened up his own practice, bought a practice, started to build a practice, but Six months into it, he realized he didn't like putting his hands in people's mouths. Oh, my God. So Jeez. he kept the business for a little while, sold the business, made money off the business, and then started teaching other dentists how to run the business. Perfect. And then yeah, somebody think- ran that business down, so he bought it back, rebuilt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've got a friend, and one of my clients is banking. He did a talk on individuation individuation what it is are you are essentially it's are you living up somebody else's expectations or your own it's it's kind of like a midlife crisis you stop at age 50 or whatever and you go wait a minute is this the the person i came here to be am i doing what i came here to do he had a business coach wise person anthony is is my client's name and he couldn't make it to that next level in management in banking Uh and he was well qualified and his coach finally said to him, look, Anthony, it's not because you're not qualified to get this position. You are overqualified. You don't want the problem. Is, yeah, truly, truly, you don't, you don't want it. It's not what you need to be doing. And he ended up getting the position. 
And the way he knew the coach was right is as soon as he hung up the phone from getting the new gig, he started crying about getting the new gig and knew, okay, this is obviously not for me. So he ran it out a little bit and then went back to school. And now he's a, a coach of some kind and he went, got a degree in psychology. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he's a people person. He's a, helping people. Yeah, it's perfect for him. So let's let's kind of bring this back to a circle. When yeah. we're looking at that, people aren't necessarily doing what they need to do or what they really have a passion to do. And I, yeah. I call it a passion. They got to have a passion for the mission for what they want to do. Yeah. So if they don't have that, that can lead to some form of depression. Now, granted, sometimes that's already built into their DNA, I'm assuming. Is that sure. right? 25% so, of the people have a mental challenge of some kind. Mm-hmm. So when that's the case, when we give them permission to get out of that, do we see the likelihood that that depression is gone? Or is it kind of like other aspects that it's never gone? It's always there. You just have to manage it. It depends on whether it is, as in my case, it's in my DNA. My, it's called generational depression and suicide. It just runs in my, it's in my system. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if it is a situational depression due to perhaps their the career they've chosen and they and and they know in their heart they don't belong there, then if they make that switch, then chances are who's just situational they may never. And during the pandemic, a lot of people got depressed because of the uncertainty and so forth in the pandemic. And I did a bunch of keynotes and I said, look, if you're depressed, and here's some symptoms because you've never been depressed, how would you know? Uh, See a, a mental health professional, get a diagnosis. If medication indicated, take the medication. But chances are, if it's situational, you'll take the medication for a time. And then the day will come when you think, you know what? I think I can taper off of this. And you may never take another pill the rest of your life. It's not a life sentence if you start taking the pills. If it's situational, it will pass. Most people at some point in their lives have been depressed about something. Uh, many people have had thoughts of suicide, you know, at crisis moments, bankruptcy, divorce, failing out of college, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, most people don't act on it. They just, they have this thought, comes out of nowhere, where did that come from? And then they may never think about it again. I think I know someone who had a thought like that uh, at one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now let, let me save let me save a life here, because that's my goal. In, my goal is to save at least one life a day. I have a, something called chronic suicidal ideation, which I means mean, slow that down. Know, slow that down. Say it again. Chronic suicidal ideation or chronic suicidality. And the I, the story I tell is that means for people like me and my tribe. The option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And I say to the audience, when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbid. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. You know, that's like driving down a hill and there's a bridge and the water and you're thinking to yourself, you know, who would, who would think? Who would care? Who would even know that I drove into the water? So the upside of that is, Every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation. They don't know it has a name. They don't even know it's a thing. They think they're just some kind of freak and completely alone. And I mean, when a young woman came up to me after a college presentation, said, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, well, God tell you, it made me weep. How did it make you weep? Well, you know your story about the car? Get it fixed buy a new one, kill yourself? I go, yes, because I've been having those thoughts all my life. I thought it was just me. I didn't know that it had a name. I thought I was just some kind of freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone and I wept. That's the power of being vulnerable, sharing a story, starting a conversation. And there may be somebody listening to this right now who may have chronic suicidal ideation. Let me warn you, I would suggest you go to your therapist if you have a therapist, tell them everything you learned today on this podcast. Don't tell them you learned it from a comedian. Tell them you learned it from Greg. And I want to- Hey, put me on the spot. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. He told me. And it's not in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, the DSM, the big book of psychological illnesses yet. 
I mean, I've met 20 year clinicians who said to me, Frank, when I heard you say that, I thought I've never heard of that. But the guy said to me, I thought back over the years to my patients and the symptoms you mentioned. And I thought, son of a gun, I, I bet these people that he's thinking of had that. And, you know, it's not in the big book. So anyway. That's, that's powerful when you stop to think about it that way. If I hear of somebody, if I'm at work or if I'm in my church or if I'm in my kids' um, groups, uh, sports groups, and I, or wherever I happen to be, if I hear some comments about I'm just really upset, I'm ticked off, I'm pissed off, whatever it happens to be, if I'm hearing things like that, is that cause that I might want to just step in? And I don't want to step into somebody else's personal life. So what can I do from an outsider point that could possibly help somebody? And how do I identify if it's just a ticked off guy or somebody who's having challenges? Well, a couple of three signs of depression that almost always present. They eat too much or they can't eat. They complain about eating too much or can't eat, sleep too much or they can't sleep. They, they have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, so maybe late for work or school, but they rally in the afternoon like a different person. And here's one you can actually observe visually. If they let their personal hygiene go, they've usually been pretty well put together and you see them, the hair's kind of dirty, clothes aren't quite so clean. It may be because they're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning, run a load of wash, take a shower. So the question comes up, what do you say to them? Well, here's what you don't say. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? Here's what you do say. If you suspect that they're depressed, you say, look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. If, in fact, you're living with depression, under depression is a mental illness. The good news is, with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And here's the tough question. You have to ask this in just this way. Are you having thoughts of suicide? There's an old urban legend that you should never mention the suicide word in front of people who are depressed. I love the reasoning. It might give them the idea. Suicide? What a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Uh, They've already got that idea. Oh, yeah. Long ago. Mm -hmm. So let's say they don't, they're not forthcoming about their, their thoughts of suicide. But in your gut, I say always go with your gut feeling. You think they may be. How would you know? Well, they frequently talk about death and dying. Um, you catch them Googling death and dying or how to die by suicide. Dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. They begin to gather the means, stockpiling medication, buying a firearm. They start getting their affairs in order, especially if they're giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure those prized possessions go to the people they want them to go to before they are gone. And here's a counterintuitive one. They've been depressed for a long time and all of a sudden they're happy for no reason. And you're happy because thank God they're happy. The problem is they may be happy because They've chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain is coming to an end. Because, Greg, most people who die by suicide do not want to die. They simply want to end the pain. I didn't want to die. I just wanted to end the pain. So, last step. Let's say they, they are having thoughts of suicide. Uh, how would you? Well, I just told you how, how you'd know. Uh, what you don't say is you're being melodramatic, you just want attention, nobody who talks about it ever does it. Let's say they are having thoughts of suicide, and they're upfront about that. But the plan's not really well-formed. What would you say? Well, what I would say is, okay, all right, bottom line, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then I say, okay, tell me why not. Make them give voice whatever it is that's keeping them here because something is keeping them here otherwise you wouldn't be having this conversation what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them to to give voice to that whatever it is to solve the, their own problem yeah because it, it's in the suicide prevention business it's called a um you want that uh you want that's a, that's a turning point when you can get them to give voice to what's keeping them here because they oftentimes realize it's my folks. And that can, that you can grab hold of that turning point and leverage that and say, you know, look, what do you say? You and I, we just create a plan to keep you safe just for today. And ideally you get them to a mental health facility where they're, they're um, evaluated. Mm -hmm. And 
if medicated if necessary. Also get a, get a physical evaluation. Sometimes mental health issues present as physical ailments. I had a friend who was, I'm sorry, physical ailments present as mental difficulties. He was terribly depressed and he had a physical and the guy, doctor says, look, your body's having trouble metabolizing iron. So you put him on a slow iron supplement, which means it's time released. Mm-hmm. And the depression went away. It was an iron thing. It wasn't, it was just presenting as depression. Mm-hmm. So I just got to make sure that that's not the idea for everybody. That's just in that one situation. Yes. But I would always do the physical just in case there's yes. something organic that's presenting as a mental illness. Mm-hmm. So you never know. So mm-hmm. anyway, that that's, that's the, so as a, as an individual, that's, you're looking for those signs and symptoms. And, and again, nine out of 10 people give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, which means they want someone to notice and step in yeah one of the greatest ideas i ever heard from a, a leadership team it's the company that makes most of the fire hydrants in the country flow c-l-o-w if you look at a fire hydrant you'll see c-l-o-w and i thought it meant you know, like clear liquid something no it's a guy's name c-l-o-w well i did their safety day i did they decided mental health is going to be the topic of their safe annual safety meeting and what they made as part of their standard operating procedures, rules and regulations at the company. If somebody says to you, are you, you know, hey, Bob, I'm a little concerned. Are you depressed? By company regulation, you are supposed to say, thank you for asking. But no, got a new kid at home, you know, an infant. I've been up three nights. That's why I'm. So what they're doing is they're trying to take the onus off somebody, somebody, worried about getting harsh because they simply brought it up so are you depressed listen first of all thank you for asking it just it it sort of de-escalates that possible you know why are you asking me that you know so so i told him i'm stealing that (laughs) you know we've been on here for a while now we've talked about a whole lot of things as it relates to teamwork, leadership, culture, but also about how it relates to our individual selves. And our individual selves are the part that starts to build a great team, whether it's a family team, a personal life team, it doesn't matter. It's, it's all right there. And mental health and mental illness is a huge challenge today. And it's getting a lot of awareness because of a lot of public people who've been coming forward. And I think yeah. that's just really, really good there. I need just give us where people can go. There's obviously the nationwide numbers, uh, uh, things like that, that are really powerful that people can reach out to if they're having troubles. What's the best way for people? Well, they just finally got the nationwide three digit suicide prevention lifeline number 988. That's 988. Yes. And if you're younger, and they realized this not too long ago, younger people are more forthcoming if you're texting rather than talking. Mm -hmm. So they created a suicide prevention text line. Text the word help to 741-741. Yep. Text the word help or connect. Text anything to that number and you'll get a response. And whoever's on the other end of the line will probably be about your age. You know, it'd be a millennial or a Gen Z person. Uh, locally, there's something called NAMI, National Alliance of Mental Illness, N-A-M-I, NAMI. They have, a, they have chapters in most counties of any size. Every, and, and they have programs for individuals. Uh, they have programs for families. One of my friends who's a state farm agent, his son was living with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. And it was about to blow the family completely apart. And they went to NAMI. And NAMI has a 12-week program to teach the family of someone like this, what say, what not say, you know, how to handle things, uh, how to find resources. And they have family to family counseling. So you got more than one family in there has the same issue. And the great thing about National Alliance of Mental Illness, NAMI, is everything they do is free. Okay. So I would That's say awesome. between those three. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for people to find Frank King? I'm in witness protection, so that's not going to happen. No, if you go to the mental health comedian, or as we say down south, the mental health comedian, thementalhealthcomedian.com, all my contact information is there. And actually, if you put in 
your email address, you can download an MP3 audiobook version of our first book on men's mental health. And I narrated it. It's unabridged. I narrated it and you get it for free for an email address. Sweet. Frank, it's been a privilege to have you on board here. Um, you know, teamwork is critical and teamwork begins with us on an individual basis. So, and those, those individuals, by the way, depression costs U.S. businesses more than heart attack, stroke, and diabetes combined in the variety of costs, hard costs, lost productivity, you know, absenteeism, yep. so forth. So it, it's, it's people tend to focus on the physical health of their employees. It's, you know, the, the mental health needs to have parity. That's so true on so many different levels and every aspect of our lives. Uh, we've got to focus on every aspect of it. It's a holistic approach. Uh, yes. You know, the heart, the mind, and the soul, as I like to tease it and say. So that's really cool. <laughs> Thanks very much for being uh, uh, on our podcast today. We're in our fifth season here on the uh, Teamwork Advantage. And uh, reach out to Frank. Reach out. If you're having challenges, please reach out. Dial the 988. Text the 741-741. Just text yep. help. Get the help that you need when you need it. That's the beauty part of this. And that's exactly what we're looking for here. Teamwork Advantage, we're all about helping you get a little bit better every day. You know, and once a week with the Teamwork Advantage, you get ideas that you can implement immediately. And Frank has shared a lot of that with us today. How we can help ourselves, how we can help each other moving through crisis situations. You know, until next week, remember having a good day is just being average. By listening to the Teamwork Advantage, we know that you are not average. So go make today an excellent and exceptional day. Until next week, take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.